We just started a, a new series last week. Um, we, we're, we're calling this series Beyond Christmas. And, and the basic premise behind this series is that um, what if, what if a relationship with Jesus, what if a relationship with the church and with God's people could actually make a difference in our life? What if instead of coming every six weeks or a couple times a year, maybe just Christmas and Easter, what if, if we really truly engaged in this church life, if we really engaged in our relationship with Jesus, would it make a difference? And, and more specifically, what we said at Christmas, we said if, if you'd come back for a couple weeks for this series called Beyond Christmas, what we want to do is we want to look at real life problems that all of us are dealing with real things that we all feel like we need help with, and then ask the question, what difference would it make if, if Jesus was involved in this problem? What difference would it make if the church was involved? I want to talk about loss. And so the reason I want to talk about it is as I started surveying the, the people in my life and the, the things that have been happening uh, around me lately, what I, what I realized is just last week in my life group, we had somebody lose a parent. And uh, two weeks ago, our, one of our youth group leaders lost a grandparent. Two months ago, there was a, a family in our youth group who lost a family member to suicide. And just over a year ago, I lost my own granddad. And that's just the people that are in my immediate orbit. I think that this is an interesting season where God has brought to my attention how much loss we're all dealing with. And so what I want to do to kind of kick this off is a, is a survey, okay? And so um, what I want to do is once your hand is up, would you please keep your hand up, okay? Um, how many of you guys in the last couple years, this last season of life, have lost somebody close to you, friend, a family member? It's actually a lot of people. If you look around real quick, that's pretty good company. Okay, keep your hands up. Now, how many of you guys have lost um, a job for one reason or another? Maybe uh, a layoff or your career ended or the business closed or for one reason or another. Now, how many of you guys have lost a close or major friendship in the last couple of years? Somebody that you really cherished and it's gone now. Okay, look around. If I kept going, you guys can put your hands down. If I kept going, you guys, we could, we could, I could keep asking questions, and it would take me, I'm sure, less than two or three minutes to get everybody's hand up, because everybody deals with loss, don't we? It's kind of a universal problem. It doesn't matter if you are a church person or not. It doesn't matter if you know Jesus or not. You're going to deal with loss in your life. And you know what? Our losses look different for each one of us. Sometimes, and it's okay to start there, but sometimes when we talk about loss, the first thing that we think of is death. And we are gonna talk about that, people that die and that kind of loss. But that is not the only kind of loss that we experience, is it? So maybe, maybe you're here and you're a teenager. Maybe you're in high school and you remember what it was like to be a kid and to have that, innocence, you know, that, that joy of childhood, and now you're suddenly aware of life's burdens, and you see life coming at you like a train, and you've lost that childhood, right? Or maybe you're a, a young mom, and you didn't realize it at the time, but you really enjoyed your freedom. 
and then suddenly you've got this little human that needs you constantly, and you don't have that freedom anymore, and you feel stuck, right? Maybe you're here, and your kids have kind of grown up. You've, you've, you've come to a different point in life, and your, the buying power as you got further in your career got better, and so you, you bought a bigger, better house with the intention of having all of your extended family come over for the holidays, and Christmas just happened, and you, you have these high expectations, and everybody shows up, and they stay for about 30 minutes, and they leave, and you've lost that connection with your family that you once had, and your kids don't hang out with you like they used to, and people don't call, right? There's different kinds of losses. Maybe, maybe you've experienced some trauma in your life, like a rape, or you were abandoned by a parent, or you had an ugly breakup or an ugly divorce, and you lost something that was emotional, something that was, it was painful but not tangible. See, there's all kinds of different losses, aren't there? And I would say, if you have not yet experienced a major loss in life, just give it time. You're going to. That's a reality. And so I know that that's a downer. That's where we're going to start, okay? And the reason is because it's universal, okay? If we're dealing with that, then what happens if we ask the question, in loss, in dealing with loss in life and the pain of losing people and things, what difference would it make if Jesus was involved? What difference would our relationship with God make? What difference could the church make in that loss, in that pain. And here's what I want to suggest to you today, that there is hope in dealing with loss. There is a difference that Jesus can make. There is a difference that God's people can make in your life. What I want to do today is I want to talk about a Bible story, and the story is Job's. And the problem is the book of Job is 40-something chapters long, and I want to talk about it all today. And so we're not going through it verse by verse. We're not going to go through it chapter by chapter even. I'm going to tell you the story. And it starts with the description of who Job is. And Job was blameless and upright. And I love that. The very beginning of the book of Job starts with Job is a good guy. And then it talks about all of his blessings. See, here's the thing. God loved Job and God was taking care of Job. And so we start out with this list, and let's work through it real quick. Job had a wife and kids. He had seven sons and three daughters. He had 7,000 sheep, it said, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and a lot of servants. And I know whenever you hear that, you think, okay, neat, Job was a farmer, right? Like, like. I, I don't, it doesn't connect to most of us, right? For most of us, there's not a really, uh, we're not like wowed by that list. And the reality is that if Job was set in today's era, if we were gonna have a Job among us, he would be that guy with the house on the hill and the gate, right? And, and you can't even get into his property without going through this gate. And after you go through the gate and you're going past the beautiful manicured lawns, you finally wind your way down the driveway to his beautiful house and parked outside of his three-car garage is a Land Rover and a Porsche. And you wonder, well, I wonder what's inside, right? This is the guy that has a lot of resources. In fact, he probably has three different businesses and, and he's to the point now that he's ready to retire and he's still in his 30s. He's that guy, right? He's doing really, really well. 
He's really blessed. In fact, later in the book of Job, uh, in chapter 29, Job is kind of looking back at all of his blessings, all of the the things that that God had done for him. And when he starts to describe it, he describes it this way. He says that he was so blessed that it was like he had his path drenched with cream and olive oil spouted out of the rock. Now, I said that to a, a coworker. I was talking this through, and she goes, Ew that doesn't sound good, right? He's got to walk in milk. Like, that's going to stink, right? And so what you have to understand is the way that he's describing this is the finer things in life, the things that would have been hard to come by in Job's era, oil, olive oil, and cream were so commonplace that they were literally just on the path for him that he could walk on these things that everybody else would consider extravagant. And things that you need, like olive oil, just flows out of a rock. Like, he doesn't even have to put any effort in to live this lavish lifestyle. He goes on in that chapter to say that I had influence. I could go to the city gates where all of the important people in town were and everything would stop and they would pay attention to my opinion. He said that he had a good reputation. See, everything that he did for other people, he did well. And so everybody in town loved Job. And he had good health and he had people's praise. Job really was a rock star. In fact, the book of Job isn't about what Job had. It's about what Job lost. Because he was a rock star, and then this conversation in heaven happens. And if you're not familiar, it's this really weird scene, right? And so God's up in heaven, and he assembles all of the angelic beings. Basically, he has his host of creation, except for earth, and he gets them all together And of all the people, of all the the beings that could be there, Satan's there too. And and God says, Satan, where have you been? And he goes, well, I've, I've been roaming around on the earth. And he goes, oh yeah? Have you noticed Job? And it's like there's this window from heaven that opens up and God goes, do you see Job? Man, he's awesome. Like the God of the universe is looking down and saying, that guy is amazing. I love Job. And Satan goes, Oh, yeah, you love him. Look at all the stuff you've given him, right? And what's interesting is we're going to read in Job chapter 1, verse 9, what Satan says to this moment when God's like, have you seen my rock star, my star player? Job chapter 1, verse 9. Does Job fear God for nothing, Satan replied? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You've blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now, stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and surely he will curse you. What Satan says here is, Job doesn't love you. He loves what you do for him. In fact, if that's your star player, it's probably not even possible for anybody to really love you, God. You imagine Satan, the accuser, standing next to the God of the universe saying, nobody loves you. They love what you do for them. You're buying their love. Job's the best example. You think he's your rock star. What would happen if we took all of that away? He wouldn't love you. And see, what he does is he throws out this challenge where he's basically asking the question of Job, is God enough? Pretty serious question, isn't it? Especially when you think about all that Job has. Well, in all of that, is God enough? And so God says, you know what? 
I trust Job. I think he does love me. And so in one of the most unexplainable parts of, of Scripture, God says, yeah, go ahead and take it all away. And so basically, because of this challenge, this question, is God enough, Satan gets permission to, to afflict Job. And the things that he loses are incredible. It comes in two rounds. Round one looks something like this. A servant comes running in and he says, Job, Job, all of your, your sons and daughters, they were all hanging out, having a party, and while they were, nobody was watching the oxen out in the field, and something happened to them, and all of that entire herd is gone. They're all dead. And while he was still speaking, another servant runs in, and he goes, Job, you're not going to believe it, but your entire herd, your entire flock of sheep was just killed from, with fire from heaven. Weird, <laughs> right? <laughs> While he was still speaking, another guy runs in and he goes, Job, all of your camels, raiders came in, the Chaldeans came in and they stole them all and they're all gone and they killed all your servants and I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another servant runs in and he goes, Job, you know how all of your, your kids, they were all together eating and, and partying in that house? A wind just came up and it knocked down the corners of the house and it they're all dead, and I'm the only person who made it out to tell you. And you know what? In that moment, it would be like somebody coming in to that wealthy person on the hill and saying, Job, somebody, I just found out, somebody mismanaged your 401k, and you thought you had it all in there, and it is gone. And somebody else runs in, and they say, Job, Job, I don't know why, but both of your businesses burned down this morning. And somebody else runs in and they go, Job, your kid got in an accident. And I was driving, but I made it out, and I'm here to tell you he didn't make it. And you know what? I can't even imagine losing one child. Imagine losing them all in the same moment that literally every resource, every, every part of income, every security that Job had, all of it gone in a moment. And Job tears his clothes, and he sits down in ashes, but he doesn't curse God in that. And so back to the scene in heaven, and, and God goes, you see, Satan? Do you see? I told you he wouldn't curse me. I told you he loves me, and Job goes, or and Satan goes, well, yeah, because you told me I couldn't do anything to him. What if I got to pick on Job himself? And Satan, or God says, I trust him in that too. And so round two looks something like this. While Job is in that place of despair and mourning, Satan gets to afflict Job with boils from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. Literally open sores, open wounds all over Job's body. And the only relief that he can find is to take a broken piece of pottery and to scrape that layer of skin off. And while he is scraping off the pain of this physical affliction, his wife walks in and goes, why do you still have integrity? Just curse God and die. His partner in life can't take it anymore. She goes, this is horrible. Curse God. 
and die. Now, the rest of the book of Job is really hard to read, okay? All of that happens in the first chapter and a half, okay? Now, I said it was 40-something chapters long. A big, big chunk of the book of Job centers around Job's three friends coming in an attempt to mourn with and comfort their friend Job. And when they sit down with him, they start having this conversation that takes 30-something chapters, and the entirety of it is basically wrestling with why, right? Job wants to know why, and his friends are like, why would you have to go through this? And so one of them will suggest, like, well, maybe it was because of your disobedience to God. And Job goes, no, that's not it. And, and another one will have a, they have a solution, and, and it's back and forth. And for 30-something chapters, they are wrestling with the question, why? And you know what? If you've ever suffered a great loss, Job is oddly a comforting book because of that part of it because I think that's a common thing, isn't it? When we lose something of value or a person that we love so much, one of the things that we start with is, why? Why that person? Why that relationship? It reminds me of, uh, of my wife's story. Whenever she was growing up, whenever she was a little girl, her person was her grandma. You guys ever, like, do you remember your childhood? Like, you can love your whole family. There are people coming and going that you can, you can enjoy, but sometimes there's that one person. That's your person. They love you the most. They're in your corner the most often. You feel the most connected to that person. That was my wife's grandma. And whenever she was in, like, the fifth or sixth grade, her grandma died of cancer. And to this day, my wife struggles with why her? Like, I understand death happens and things happen, but, but why her? And I think we all can identify with why. And you know what? The reason is, is because it doesn't feel fair, does it? And knowing why might help us understand. We might be able to make it feel fair if we just understood why. And you know what's interesting about the book of Job? This painful exchange of 30-something chapters of why is left unresolved. Job never finds out why. Because answering the question of why isn't what God needed to deal with in Job. God wanted to deliver Job from something else. And in loss, I think that he wants to deal with us in the same thing. And so what I want to do now is I want to just have a practical conversation. Um, if you can't see the whiteboard, it might be worth moving. I'm going to draw something, okay? So let's say that this whiteboard represents our emotional response to loss, okay? And, and this is just something that we're going to see in the book of Job, but I'm sure that we're all going to feel these same things. And so when you experience loss, especially loss that has, um, that, that's major, something that's kind of a big deal, our emotional response looks something like this. One part of it involves our sadness. When we lose that person 
that thing, that status, that innocence, that relationship. It's gone, and it's just, it hurts, right? Now, if it hurts enough because it was a big enough thing, we might not just call it sadness, we might call it Sorrow, and so if you've ever experienced sorrow, sorrow is kind of like sadness, but it's the sadness that creeps into who you are. It creeps into your bones, right? It's that sadness that changes the way that you do life for a while. We see this in Job, right? The first thing that he does is he rips his clothes and he sits down in pain. It's that sadness that means maybe I I don't interact with people the same way. Maybe I'm a, I retreat a little bit. I can't just get over this one today. I'm not just going to wake up okay tomorrow. And then another word that the Bible uses to describe this is mourning. And mourning is sort of the, it's the process of sorrow, right? It's the working through the sorrow, Now, if that's one side of our emotional response to loss, um, there's also another side, isn't there? Because for those of you guys that have experienced great loss in life, you feel these things, but it's not that easy, is it? There's more things involved. And so there's another part of our emotional response. And one of the things that we see in the book of Job, in Job's response, it says that he never sinned and cursed God, right? But what we do see is in his laments and in his arguments with his friends, one of the things that he deals with is embarrassment. And I think that that's a common thing for us too. That when we lose certain things, there's an embarrassment, isn't there? Especially when those things aren't tangible things. A loss of innocence because of a rape. And there's a part of you that's like, I don't really want people to know about that, right? Or uh, maybe it's whenever, uh, if you've experienced a divorce, and I know statistically I'm looking out here at a bunch of people that have experienced a divorce, and when that happens, it's not like you want people to know, right? And so you're embarrassed, and Job was embarrassed. It says in that chapter I was talking about where he was talking about the cream and the olive oil and all the things, right after that he says, I used to like walking into town, and now... Everybody knows my pain and my problems as much as they knew my blessings before. And he's embarrassed, right? All right, so that's, that's one of them. Another thing that we see in the book of Job, in Job's response, is bitterness. Now, if you think of bitterness, like when you're eating something or you're drinking something, when you put it in your mouth, it's that thing that makes you go, it's not quite enjoyable, Right? Now, if that was in your soul, bitterness is whenever something starts to creep into you and nothing feels quite right. And you look around and you go, this just, I kind of want to tense up. I kind of, I feel this, something is brewing inside of me that's not satisfied. Like whenever you drink something that's really bitter, it's just not right. 
okay? Now, his bitterness in there at times turns into anger, and that is really common, isn't it? If you've ever lost something of incredible value to you, one of the things that we do is we say, our why question turns into how dare you sort of responses, doesn't it? Right? Whenever my, my wife is, was dealing with why my grandma, there were times whenever her expression would have been, God, it could have been anybody else. And it wouldn't have hurt that bad. Why turns into anger sometimes, doesn't it? And anger can turn into resentment. And we get to the point where we actually have feelings for a somebody else or feelings for an entire group of people or for God where we basically categorized it as they did something that hurt me and we resent them for it. And we could keep going. There's, I could keep going. What I want to get to is there's one here that I think is a big deal that whenever we are experiencing loss, one of our emotions is inadequacy, isn't it? Whenever something is taken from us, Sometimes we feel like now we are less than, especially in times of divorce. You lose a spouse, right? You lose a child. You lose a relationship with a friend. And there are things in there where we just, I, I, I don't know now if I'm worthy of those things, if it was lost from me. And that leads us then to the last one, which is fear. Fear. The more times you've experienced loss, the more likely you are to be afraid of loss, right? And so our emotional response to loss leads us all the way through here to fear. All right, so breaking that down, I think, is a useful tool. Even if you don't, if you don't believe in Jesus, it's still useful to be able to see these two kind of categories of our emotional response. And here's the thing. On these, this side here, You have to go through this, okay? In fact, God never once in the whole account of Scripture ever had a problem with anybody dealing with this stuff. Jesus dealt with this stuff, didn't he? Whenever Jesus is, is coming into Lazarus' hometown knowing that Lazarus had died, and his sisters come out, and they run out, and they meet him at the edge of town, and they say, if you would have only been here, Jesus, he wouldn't have died. And he sees their grief and their pain, and he knows his friend is in the grave, and it says Jesus wept. Jesus was sad, right? Jesus recognized that something was missing because of his friend's death. And you know what? It's normal to go through this part of loss, and it's necessary. In fact, you ought to give yourself permission to go through those things because it's actually evidence that you loved in the first place, right? Doesn't Jesus say, love God and love others and love other people as yourself, right? And so if you're loving deeply in life, you are bound to feel deeply when there's a loss, and you need to experience those things. And if we ask the question, what difference does God make in all of this? This is one of those places. Check these verses out. Here's one in, in Psalm chapter 34, verse 18. The Lord 
is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. You know, if we were going to reword this, we could easily write brokenhearted and crushed in spirit over here, couldn't we? And it says the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. And it's as if he wants to sit down next to you in the ashes. And he wants to wipe that mascara stain off your face from your tears. And he wants to put his arm around you and just say, I just want to be close to you in this. While you're brokenhearted, I'll just hug you. Now check this out. What Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5. Sorry, I knew it was going to happen. I brought tissues. Did you bring tissues? You should have known. All right. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And Jesus is actually saying, in some way, there is an honor in going through mourning because it's evidence that you loved well. And part of that honor is that God will comfort you, that you get a little more of God's presence in that moment. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 says this, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we have ourselves received from God. You see, there is hope in our pain, and you have to go through these things. Even Jesus wasn't immune from going through these things but you don't have to go through them alone. You have a God that wants to experience those things with you. And did you notice in that verse there in in 2 Corinthians, that's part of the design of the church. For those of us that have been comforted, we can be a comfort. And if you ask the question, what difference does church life make when I'm dealing with loss and pain? While you have to deal with it, you don't have to deal with it alone. And you should have God's people around you. And you should expect Jesus to sit with you in the ashes. All right. So what about the other side? What about the other side of the board? You see, here's the thing. Jesus would want for you to give these things up. The embarrassment and the bitterness and the anger. He would want for you to give those things to him, right? In fact, in this context, I think most of us can identify with this list, can't we? In, this, in, in, the, in the context of losing somebody, we think, I've been angry, I've been bitter, I have felt those things. But if I took away all of this and it didn't say anything about loss and all we had was this list, what does that list look like to you? It looks like a list of things the Bible might call sin. Right? And Jesus says, Look, I want to take your sin from you. And I think it's important for you to hear that, but I also want you to know that while I think it's important for for Jesus to take our sin, in this moment, you know what I think is more important? I think that he wants to take these things from you because they're so destructive. They're like poison to your soul. How many of you guys have ever been in a season? where you're just caught up in bitterness. 
where, where a pain or something has just caused you to be angry, and you're angry at God, or you're angry at people, or you're angry at life, and life just won't get better, and you're bitter about it, and it's a poison to your soul. And Jesus says, I want to take those things from you. And yeah, there, there might be a sin problem there, but more importantly, that is poison. Jesus wants to join us in the pain, but he wants to take away the poison. Now, that might make a lot of sense, and yet there's this bigger problem. Some loss is so devastating that we refuse to let go of these things, don't we? Some losses are bigger than others, aren't they? Some of them are way bigger than others. If you've ever had to lose a child in the womb or after, that one's pretty big, isn't it? If you've ever lost a marriage and you were the one who was left, that one's a big one. Maybe you were raped or abused and it was that loss of something you didn't even know you had, that, that innocence, that confidence. Those things are bigger, aren't they? They're bigger than maybe losing your first job at 16 and you got fired because you were a bad employee and, you know, okay, I'll get another job. And they're both losses, but one of those matters more, doesn't it? And the ones that are so devastating in life I think that we have this sense that I have a right to these feelings, that I have a right to my bitterness. And we hold on to those things tightly, don't we? And we justify and we say, yeah, under other circumstances, these things might be bad, but did you see what I lost? And we feel justified in our anger and our pain. And you know what? Before we go too much further, I want to acknowledge that there's another option too, or at least there seems like there is. I think that there is this option that people feel like they get to just walk in victory by ignoring it. That somehow you're walking in victory over this because you just pretend like it didn't happen. And that is a hollow victory. If Jesus had to experience this pain, you don't get to get out of it either. But I think that there's this sense that, oh, listening to all of this, you go, yeah, I'm not, I'm not really going to deal with that. I'm okay. I'll just focus on something else. It seems like it's an option, and it's not. Because while you may never deal with these things, and you might be okay with never healing here, you're still stuck with these things. And that poison in your soul won't go away. Now, why is this such a problem? I think that it's because the things that we've lost have become part of our identity. So I'm going to show you guys something. Um, I bought this coat at, uh, at Goodwill, and if you donated it, thank you. <laughs> um, don't be mad at me in a minute, all right? Um, so I, I got this coat at Goodwill, and, and this coat is my identity for the next few minutes, okay? This coat, I'm sorry about that, guys. This coat represents 
my identity. Now, as I walk through life, I experience some things that are bigger deal than other things, right? And so um, early in my life, one of the things that, that I experienced was um, I was my granddad's grandson. Now, everybody has a grandparent, right? But my, my granddad was also kind of like my babysitter, and I was an only child, and he had some property, and so we did like real fun things. And part of who I am to this day is, is a result of me being his grandson. In fact, I have since inherited and kind of purchased the property that he had, right? So there's this part of who I am now is my granddad's role in my life. And I take that thing and I clip it on to my identity. That's actually now part of who I am, right? Now, another thing that I was really um, proud of growing up is I, I had a pretty good reputation, I was a good kid in school. I was a good student. Um, my parents gave me a long leash because I didn't ever really do that much wrong, and so I had like this curfew that would keep getting extended because they were tired of the phone calls. They would rather just trust me until breakfast and because I had a good reputation, right? And so I, I feel like I've carried that on into adulthood, and so now part of who I am is that I feel like, kind of like Job, I've got this this good reputation. Now, lots of other things have happened in my life. At one point, I met a girl, and she was so sweet, and she swept me off my feet. And, and now I, I've got a, a, a beautiful marriage, and part of who I am is that I am loved by my spouse. Right? Now, that one's pretty important to me. I'm gonna put that one right up here by my heart. But at, along the way, some other things have happened. I, I got a career. I stopped being that guy that just had a job. And at some point, I'm like, I found the job, right? And I feel like I'm in the zone in life. And so a part of who I am is my, my career. And part of who you are might be your career. And I'm also a parent. And I've prided, I don't know how you past tense that. I've been proud of parenting, because I feel like I'm a good parent. I feel like I've connected well with my kids. I feel like I disciplined them the right amount. And so over time, I've gotten to the point that I, I feel pretty confident as a parent. And now in all these things, if you look at my coat, my identity, these things in life that were real important to me, I've attached them. They are now part of my identity because they meant so much. And if you were to ask me who I am, right, my cliche answer might be something else, but my real answer is, well, I'm a, I'm a good parent who was a grandchild loved by my wife, right? But what happens when I lose one of these? And while I feel like I'm a good parent, what if... One of my kids goes off the rails. What if I, I, I don't connect with them like I used to connect with them? And, and I don't have the influence that I thought I had, and they're not making the choices that, that I think that they should make. And we get to the point that one of them doesn't even want to come home for Christmas anymore. And I've lost this. But when I lost it, because it was part of who I am, 
It took part of me with it. What if it was my granddad? What if it was my wife? You see, as we've taken things and we've attached them to who we are, those things, when they get lost, they take part of who we are with it. And now, my identity coat looks a little different, doesn't it? Now I've, got, I've still got some tags on here. I've still got some things that I would say are part of who I am. But you know what? There's this other part of me. This hole is now part of me. This, this hole is part of my identity. Now I'm not a good parent. Now I'm a failed parent. Right? Or if I had ripped off the spouse part, I was loved by my spouse, but, but now I'm unlovable. And I've decided that part of my identity because of that loss is now the whole. And you see, here's the thing. And we see this in the book of Job, and I think it's true in reality too, that loss exposes your identity. You might not necessarily recognize the things that you've attached to your coat, but you know it when you lose them. Loss exposes your identity. And see, understanding this helps us understand one of the hardest things that Jesus ever said. There, there is this passage in, in Matthew chapter 10 that we're going to go to in just a second where Jesus says something that people have wrestled with for a really long time. Let's read it together. Matthew 10, verse 37. Anyone who lose or loves their father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Man, that's hard to read, isn't it? Because you love your parents, you love your kids. Like, this doesn't make sense. Jesus, what are you asking me for? And what he's saying here is, I'm offering you an exchange. I'm offering you the opportunity to unhook your life, the things that you define yourself with, the parts of you that you have decided are are part of who you are, if you will unhook those things and hand them to me, I will hand you back a different identity. There's an exchange. And when we unhook things like our, our reputation and we say, Jesus, is, it's not mine. We stop acting like owners of the things in our life and we are stewards instead Because the reality is that most of the time when you give something to Jesus, he gives it right back to you. But not for your sake. You see, I say, I take off things and I say, God, this marriage isn't mine. It's not for my benefit. It's not part of my identity. And he says, I'll take that part of your identity. And then whenever he gives it back to me, he says, you're right, it's not your marriage. But I'm going to empower you to love your wife better than you ever could have. I'm going to make your marriage better because you're in it. Because you said, it's not mine. 
right? And my kids, I say, Jesus, these, these aren't my kids. You've given me these to handle, to take care of on your behalf. And he says, you're right, they're not yours. They are mine, and I'm gonna make you a better father. Because whenever we have held these things with an open hand instead of a tight grip, and we haven't clipped them on ourselves, it frees us up to be stewards of God's things in our life. And it frees us up to serve and to give instead of to get. Because I'm not always worried about my identity. I'm not always worried about the next hole. You see, it can't be ripped off if it's not part of my identity. And he says, I will hand you back a new identity. And you know what? The more things that you unhook, the more he hands you back joy and peace and perseverance, his perspective in loss, his victory over your struggles. Because instead of clipping things on you that you have, a, that you have acquired through life, what he clips onto your jacket is your identity in him. And he says, loved by God. Clip that one on, right? Chosen before the foundation of the world. Clip that one on. Paid for at the cross. Why don't you clip that one on? And those are things that can't be ripped off. Those are things that cannot be torn from your coat. Jesus isn't gonna leave. You're not gonna lose him. And so, if I had handed Jesus my reputation and said, look, this is for your glory, not mine, and then I mess up, I do something stupid, I find out that everybody knows my deepest, darkest secrets, and I lose my reputation, but my identity is in him, that hurt, but it didn't take part of me with it, right? And so you still would have to experience the loss and the sadness and the sorrow, but it doesn't have to own you. And the mixture that includes all of this stuff over here doesn't have to own you and doesn't have to poison you. And so when you feel bitterness rising up, you say, well, Jesus, but that... I know that you have called me to love and part of my identity is that your spirit is in me loving other people and you give that bitterness away because of your identity in him. And so I wanna tell you guys about, uh, about this thing that Paul said and if you're running the slides, don't go there. We're not gonna read it. Um, Paul said this thing that's also really hard in Philippians. He basically said that I have gotten to the point where I consider everything in my life loss compared to the gain of knowing Jesus Christ. Paul got to the point where he said, I put such high value in knowing Jesus that everything else in my life is like garbage. And that doesn't mean he doesn't love the people in life. He means the difference is so great. And what's interesting in there is he says, all of this I've done that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Paul had gotten to the point that his identity was so secure in Jesus that he had unclipped everything else and handed it and said, I, I just want to be available for you. I just want your identity to be the only thing clipped to me. And that doesn't mean Paul didn't love people, because I think he did. That doesn't mean he didn't have friendships. That doesn't mean he didn't experience pain. But it means he wasn't having things torn out of his coat. Right? And see, here's the thing. Paul knew that he was getting the better end of the deal. 
Because what Paul got in exchange was Jesus' righteousness and not his. So whenever he's having a problem with one of these things, it doesn't define him anymore. Jesus' righteousness does. And he got Jesus' perspective on loss. He got Jesus' perspective and joy in the midst of life's struggles. And whenever he had the hardest life you could imagine as an early missionary, but he had Jesus' joy. He got the better end of the deal. And so how do we make this applicable? Maybe you need to unhook some things from your identity. Maybe you need to hand some things off to Jesus. And you say, yeah, I am my granddad's grandson. But that's not my identity. That is something that you gave me. I'm glad I got to have that relationship, Jesus. And you need to hand some things off and lose your life that you might gain that new identity in him. But maybe, maybe you've experienced such loss and pain. And part of you is still missing. Maybe you've experienced some things in life where you've got a pretty big tear in your identity coat. And way back there somewhere, something was lost or taken from you that tore a chunk of you out with it. And maybe you need to go back to remember for a moment. And I don't mean for this to sound like psychobabble, okay? What I mean is, if you were to go back and make an intentional choice of picking that thing back up and saying, this hurts, this thing hurt. I really liked being a good parent. I really liked being a spouse. I really liked having my family around all the time. And you pick that thing up, and in retrospect, you go, Jesus, I want to hand you this. I want to recognize that I should have been a steward and not an owner. And when he takes it out of your hand and then unclips the part of you that was lost, and then he wants to patch you back up. Maybe that's what you need to do. Maybe you need to go back and take some ownership out of your hands so that Jesus can repair the damage. And I want to invite Winston to come back up. Um, you guys, we started in Job. We're going to end in Job. I'm going to read you guys something that is basically, um, remember Satan's challenge was, is God good enough? Is God good enough for Job? Job chapter one, still ver chapter one, verse 20. At this, Job got up and he tore his robe and he shaved his head and then he fell to the ground in worship and said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Did you catch that? It says that he, he shaved his head and he tore his robe. Signs of mourning, right? And he fell to the ground. And we're all like, yeah, that, I get that in worship. And what we see is Job's response to the question, is God enough, is, yeah, this hurts. This is hard. But you see Job in ashes on the ground, tear stains on his cheeks with his palms up, saying, yeah, you're enough. You are enough. And he praises God.
And so what I want to do today is I want to make Job's posture our posture. Maybe you're here and you need to invite Jesus into some of this, some of your sadness, some of your sorrow, some of your mourning. Maybe you're experiencing something right now that's hard. And you need to not be doing this alone. And you need to invite Jesus into that. And you, you also need to invite Jesus' people into that. Maybe you're here and you'd say, I'm really stuck with this side of the problem, right? I'm really stuck in bitterness, in anger, in resentment. The poison part is my problem. Maybe you've been here in the past and you felt like you were kind of over it, but if somebody were to bring up that person again, that situation again, that pain again, if it brings up that, that same level of emotion every time, maybe you're not over it. Maybe part of your identity was left in the past somewhere and you've been wearing the whole as if this is the new you for so long and maybe you need to go back and give that to Jesus too so that he could repair the whole. So here's what I want to do. I want everybody to bow your heads. Close your eyes. For the next few minutes, can we just take Job's posture in this and all put our palms up? This posture of having your hands open and your palms up instead of a tight fist gripped on the things of life is basically acknowledging to God that you can take whatever you want out of my hands but it also is saying you can put whatever you want in my hands. Now, with this posture, I want you to imagine your favorite part of yourself. Put that in one of your hands. The most precious part of you. I want you to imagine handing that to Jesus and saying this means a lot. I'm gonna trust you with it. Now, for those of you that know that I have a part of me missing somewhere, this is going to be hard for a second. I want you to imagine putting a label on that thing that you lost and go back and think about it for a second, and I want you to hold that thing in your hand. Was it a parent? Was it your innocence? Was it love and affection? Was it confidence? Imagine holding that in your hand and hand that to Jesus and imagine him unclipping the part of you that was torn off and just like he did with that, that guard's ear in the garden, he reaches out with that part of you and he just wants to restore you. He's going to put that part back. You guys can open your eyes. What I want you guys to know as we close is that this isn't just a moment. This may have to be a process. The next time bitterness comes up, the next time you feel like you're broken, the next time that loss comes into your mind, you may have to do it again. But as you do it more and more, what you will find is you will get more and more of Jesus in the exchange. You are not defined by what happened or what you lost. You do not have to wear the hole like a badge. 
you can let Jesus heal. You are not defined by what you have to lose either. You're making an exchange. You are defined by Jesus Christ and his righteousness and his love for you. All right. Now, I'm going to pray over us and we're going to go. And if you would say, look, I don't even know what you're talking about, this whole Jesus stuff, but man, that healing stuff sounds good. Come talk to me after service. I'd love to introduce you to the God that loves you enough to sit in your pain and take away the poison. Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I am so thankful for my friends that you've allowed us to sit here through this hard topic. And for all of us that need your presence now, I just pray that the, the doors are open, Lord. Would you just join us in these things? And would you heal us? In Jesus' name, amen.